1: Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, this is going to be a grown folk thing. We're going to all learn something. Sit down, pull up a chair, get up under the learning tree of the great Burt Lyco. He is the editor emeritus of Ordinary Times, which gets him triple the pay and double the prestige of just regular editors like little old me. Longtime friend, good mentor, good buddy, really sharp lawyer, and we're going to talk about states and elections today. Mr. Burt, sir,
0: how are you? I'm doing very well today, Andrew, and I hope you are doing well, too. I am, although we don't get to hang out in the Pacific Northwest
1: in the fall, which is a darn fine season out there. Um, Let's start there. We got 50 of these state things. We got one federal government (laughs) and the Constitution. Let's just back up for a second. The whole reason we have a Constitution is because of the state's relationships to the federal government. The Article of Confederations weren't working. They couldn't figure out the tax stuff specifically, along with another thing. So our Constitution, the whole thing, and then of course they did other things, but the whole beef of it was, what power do the states have? What power does the Fed have? And pretty much a lot of our constitutional law, constitutional debates, constitutional theory, some way or another, you're going to wind up back there at some point, right? Because that's the that was the genesis problem, and we're still working to try to solve it, aren't we?
0: Well, that's that is a good perspective and uh, at least one of many perspectives on what happened in Philadelphia in 1787 to reallocate power as between the several states and the single national government we can get into a lot of uh, interesting historical and abstract theory and i don't know if we're going to be drilling down that far into it or not but Figuring out what states are going to do and what the national government is going to do is at the core of what the Constitution is about.
1: Which gets us to this case we're going to be dealing with, more um, v. Harper. It's up for the Supreme Court. You have called it one of the most consequential cases in many a moon. I agree with you on this, although it's not going to get the splashiness like the Dobbs decision or like a gun rights decision or something like this because you do got to get in the weeds a little bit. But this is the crux of it. We have national elections that are administrated by the states and the Constitution. And I'll tee you up like this and you can kind of explain Article one, section four, the quote unquote election clause of Mm -hmm. the states have the power to do the elections, except where the feds have power to do the elections,
0: except where the states have power to do elections. Is
1: that a pretty good summary of it?
0: (laughs) Uh, the, The summary is the states have power to do elections Uh, specifically to regulate the time, place, and manner that the elections take place. That's a phrase used in the Elections Clause, unless the federal government steps in and makes a national rule that all the states have to abide by. That is one of the two Elections Clauses. The other Elections Clause applies to presidential elections, and I'm betting we're going to be talking about that towards the end of our conversation today. I
1: wish we weren't, but I got a feeling we'll be talking about that for the next two years, give or take. Um, let's throw one more in there because we got to have the constitutional background. The 17th Amendment, and we're working off Bert's piece, uh, Morby Harper's, um, in Ordinary-Times.com. Make sure you read the whole thing. Lots of links, stuff in there. We're going to be talking about it a lot today, but make sure you read, do your own homework so you know what we're talking about. The 17th Amendment is a part of this, too, because that changed part of this because, of course, that's the amendment about the U.S. Senate.
0: Right, which provides for direct popular election of senators uh, as opposed to the pre-17th Amendment way of doing things, which was uh, some states chose not to have direct popular election of senators, but the legislatures themselves uh, chose who would represent the state in the Senate. Now, think about what that means on a political basis. Think about your own state and who your state legislator, your state legislature would send to the Senate instead of the voters as a whole. Uh, Let me illustrate that with a story, Um, a story about another state. the, The state I'm thinking of is the state of Columbia one of the states of the United States. And Colombia is weird because they don't divide themselves up in Colombia the way the rest of the country does into the two national political parties. They have a gold party and they have a silver party. And they're all wonky about it there in Colombia. And they do not it's useless to try and figure out uh, whether if you live there, you'd be a gold party member or you'd be a silverite. Uh, but what's important to know is that statewide, the Gold Party is much more popular than the Silverites. Uh, the Gold Party routinely gets between 55 to 60 percent of the statewide vote. But way back in 2010, there was a really awful scandal, and the voters of Columbia rightfully threw the Gold Party majority out of the state legislature because they were all corrupt, and there is near complete turnover. And the Silverites, for a brief shining moment in their minority party history, had the governor's seat and they had both houses of the Columbia State Legislature. And they used the power that they got ruthlessly to redraw all of the legislative maps in their own favor. that was for the lower house, the upper house and the congressional delegation. And they did that Because they knew that the Gold Party was going to retake their majority in the next cycle. The, The Gold Party did eventually recover and is back to its historically high performance in the state of Columbia. But the Silverites have a significant grasp over the state legislature. And most of the time, they can have more than two thirds of the members of both houses. So they can override any veto that the Gold Party governor might throw at them. What is really interesting to us and what's relevant to this case in the Supreme Court would be who gets to draw the map for Columbia's congressional delegation, who who the state of Columbia is going to send to the US House of Representatives. Since the legislature in in Columbia is dominated by the Silverites, they will draw the district map to maximize the number of Silverites who get sent to Congress. In spite of the fact that there are a lot more members of the Gold Party than there are silverites in the state. So, if we were thinking about what impact does the 17th Amendment have in Colombia, it means that Colombia is going to be electing routinely two members of the Gold Party to the Senate and a large majority of silverites to the House.
1: Uh, Bird Lyco joining us. So, Colombia has themselves a problem. How do we extrapolate this to a state like, say, North Carolina, which is the deal in more here? They went from 13 seats to 14 seats is the issue here. But Mm -hmm. we got to do the background here. Every congressional election for the last 10 years or so has been challenged in court. There's been a lot of redo elections. These lines have been moved around and around. North Carolina has been a hotbed for redistricting slash gerrymandering, whichever side of the fence you put that on. These lines are getting moved. They're getting challenged constantly. It's in court all the time. Obviously, when something gets to the Supreme Court, that's the last stop, not the first stop. So just a little bit of the background, though, like your silverites and the gold folks, you know, how does this apply to a North Carolina where you wouldn't think it would cause total chaos to go up one congressional seat? But it is.
0: Um, It is. And part of the reason for that goes back to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And in that act, we care a lot about a concept called vote dilution. Uh, That is outlined a whole lot in Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And we now have some fairly recent Supreme Court cases interpreting Section 2 and applying it to elections in places like Oklahoma and Arizona and North Carolina. Uh, We'll be getting uh, direct rulings about North Carolina come the end of this term. If you think about my hypothetical state of Columbia, uh, it's useful for you to first figure out what is the problem that Colombians have. I think the problem that Colombians have is that their votes are being diluted. What we see reflected in their House delegation is not congruent with what we see reflected in their overall voting behavior, in their overall um, uh, representations to Congress, which we see reflected in their direct Senate election. If we didn't have the 17th Amendment, we'd be seeing silverites sent to Congress at, for, for Senate representation uh, because that's how political parties act. There's no reason to think that if you translate this into Republicans or Democrats, that one party is more noble than the other. They're political parties. They exist to get as much power to themselves and the members of their party as they can. So that's how they behave.
1: Right. And Bert Lyco joining us. The reason you cleverly call them the gold folks and the silverites is to take the politics out of it. When you have a state that's, you know, like a North Carolina, very much a swing state, very much a very even, about as even as it gets political state, a state with a lot of growing areas like the Raleigh-Durham Triangle, like Charlotte, like the coastal areas. Then you have, you know, rural areas that are declining and having, you know, loss of industry like a lot of other... It really is kind of a seminal state for these things. They're not golden silver rights. There's a lot of history here. There's mm-hmm. a lot of background. You know, of course, it was a Confederate state, if you want to go back that far. Uh, it was in the South state. It was a New Democrat state. It's been a lot of different things. There's no way to separate all that history when you go to do a political thing like a redistricting with these parties. So, no, it's not a golden silver right. It's 150 odd years of mess in history.
0: Right. And of Democrats and Republicans and those parties sort of flipping their alignments along uh, um, along a lot of important racial and policy and economic lines somewhere around the turn of the 20th century. And, and, And you can't separate the history out from where North Carolina is today from where it has been. Well, I say you can't do that. The Supreme Court, it turns out, disagrees with me. Uh, About uh, 12 years ago, they decided a case called Shelby County versus Holder. Uh, That was a case out of Alabama, and that dealt with the Voting Rights Act. Uh, The Supreme Court said in that case that the history that the Voting Rights Act was predicated on is now obsolete. We've moved past it, and we don't need this act anymore. So they uh, struck down a section of the Voting Rights Act that required pre clearance of. Uh, redistricting maps in the state of Alabama uh, that applies also to North Carolina because North Carolina like Alabama was one of the states designated by the Voting Rights Act as having historical problems with racial dilution uh, the the use of a map to reduce the voting power of voters along racial lines in uh, in the holder case we got or Shelby county uh, in the Shelby County case, we had a court say, the the Supreme Court says that you don't need to worry about that history anymore. We're past that now, so we're not going to require pre-clearance of maps through the Justice Department to be a screen against diluting black people's votes in in that case in Alabama, but North Carolina also has that same issue.
1: Yeah, Bert Leico joining us since we brought it up and we're talking about the racial component of some of this. The court case that we're dealing with here actually got kicked off by the NAACP, among a few other Mm -hmm. groups. Just kind of, of course, it's complicated, but just kind of nutshell on it. How did Moore v. Harper get to the Supreme Court? Because, again, you know, to nutshell this a little bit, the Supreme Court, they're taking this case as an example of other cases they could take. There's multiple examples of this. They've picked this one specifically. Give us a little bit of the path why I got there and why do you think the court took this one up?
0: 2020 census takes place in 2020 as required by the Constitution. And the results come back and North Carolina goes from 13 to 14 congressional seats. Now the legislature in North Carolina has to draw a new map because the old map isn't going to work. They've got a new member of Congress to create a district for. And, and they probably come up with the old with,
1: map still being held up in court being challenged. We probably ought to have that been in there too. So uh
0: there is a concept called mootness, but um, I'll I'll leave that to another court for another day. Uh the the map that we have now, as is North Carolina's history, is immediately challenged in court. Uh, so the new 14 district map that the legislature comes up with uh, gets challenged in court and the court says this looks to to us like it is a partisan gerrymander, not a racial gerrymander, uh, because that's something that the Voting Rights Act deals with. But they say it's a partisan gerrymander which violates North Carolina state law. So by making it a state law based decision, that takes a lot of the federal courts out of it. The federal courts at least in theory, don't have a lot to say about interpreting a state's law. You will look to the Supreme Court of North Carolina as the ultimate authority to interpret and apply North Carolina law. It goes up to North Carolina, which affirms that the map does violate North Carolina state law, and it relies on very, very broad provisions in the state constitution to do that. Uh, Provisions that are generalized declarations of rights, aspirations of how the law ought to be in the state, Uh, like all people are created equal, statements of that nature. This then goes back to the legislature, which draws another map, different map that goes through the same appeal process and also gets struck down. Now the North Carolina Supreme Court after striking down the second map says, all right, we've had it with you legislature, you can't do this right. We're going to appoint a, sp- a panel of three special masters, uh, temporary uh, judges whose job it will be to draw up a new map. And they appoint three special masters who get together and they draw a new map. And that's a map uh, that if we're going to be airing this on Election Day, that is a map that you and other North Carolinians will be voting on today.
1: And now is that the enacted map or the revised legislative map? Because I get them confused.
0: (laughs) There's the original legislative map. Right. There is the revised legislative map, which was adopted after the the North Carolina Supreme Court threw out the original legislative map. Right. And then there is the enacted map, which is the one that was drawn by the panel of three judges.
1: And that's the one that's on the ballot. Right. And that's the one in the court case. That's correct. So we got a new map. But on top of the map, now we got two groups of people before the court. Uh,
0: And it would be better for your listeners to think about them in terms of the gold party and the silver party. Uh, But I doubt that that's going to be pulling the wool over anyone's eyes in North Carolina if they've been paying the remotest bit of attention. Uh, So uh, let's just throw it out there. It is the Republicans in North Carolina who are arguing that the original map should be put back in place. And it is the Democrats in North Carolina who are arguing that, no, the enacted map is the outcome of the state law, and that ought to be the map that applies going forward.
1: Now, we do have some progress here. It's not all bad news. Bert Leico joining us, breaking this down. Uh, we we're at least all on one map. So that is progress, having been around North Carolina for a while, because usually we can't agree on a map. So at least we're down to one map. That's an improvement. However, yeah. now we get to the nut of this, and we not only get to that, but we get into some legal theory that has been kicked around for a long time. But now we're going to get it before the court, so it's going it's going to get decided one way or another. And this brings us to the independent state legislative theory. Right. Before we get into the court case aspect of it, do the nomenclature, the definition of that theory, and kind of how it's it's more of a recent theory in a lot of ways, although the concepts as old as the country is. But this particular application of it, you've seen it more and more lately. Just give us a little nomenclature and background on the term "independent state legislator theory."
0: The independent state legislature theory is that it is the state legislature and the state legislature alone which has authority to draw district maps. So that is different than saying that the state legislature draws the maps, which are then subject to state and federal law. If you take the version of the independent state legislature doctrine that is being advocated by Republicans in the Moore versus Harper case, the state legislature has... Uh, what's called plenary and exclusive authority. Plenary meaning absolute, they can do whatever they want, and exclusive meaning no one else participates in that process.
1: So this goes back to where we started, and you laid it out in your piece this way as well, and I think it's a good touch point just so we don't get completely unmoored here. This goes all the way back to that original Constitution that we wrote that we now know of as the U.S. Constitution. Um, this is something that was debated then. Uh, you talk about some names, Charles Pickney, among others. Mm-hmm. Again, this is not a new concept at all, is it?
0: It's not a new concept, but it is a newly reemerged concept. And sometimes very, very old concepts that have sat around and been dormant for a very long time get revived. And and sometimes to very great effect. Uh, At least one concept that was originally thrown around back then in the 1780s sat around and did nothing and eventually turned into what is now the 27th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And that happened within our lifetimes. So sometimes these very old ideas can get revived and find a new audience in today's political world. Other times we look at things that are very old and say, "No, that's for a bygone era, and we don't want to do that."
1: Yeah, Bordalojo joins us. Yeah, Bordalojo joins us. Okay, so that's the that's the petitioner's theory. That's what they're saying. We have this independent state legislator; they have the power to do these maps. They alone have the power to do the maps. What's the counterargument here? Because obviously, you're going to have two sides of the Supreme Court. Um, these various organizations that brought the original suit, but it it really is going to be Republican versus Democrat when you get down to it, because this is drawing maps. What's the counter argument against it?
0: The argument against it is what the state legislature has said should happen is what happened. The state legislature said if anybody wants to challenge this map, they can file a lawsuit against the state of North Carolina in the Wake County Circuit Court. And that's what happened. People filed a challenge to the map, the NAACP, among others, filed a challenge to the original map and then to the revised map in the Wake County Circuit Court. And it worked its way up through the judicial system as authorized by the statute, by things the legislature said should happen up to the Supreme Court. And there is a statute, something passed by the legislature that said the Supreme Court has the authority, if it chooses to exercise it, to appoint special masters to draw a new map. Nothing has happened in North Carolina that violates North Carolina state law that is passed either by the people in adopting the North Carolina Constitution or the statutes that were adopted by the legislature. So if all of the courts, all the courts have done is do what the legislature said they can and should do, then there is no intrusion on the legislature's power. Everyone has done what the legislature said they can and should do.
1: So why are we at the Supreme Court? Now, to be clear for folks that aren't familiar, North, Carolina, North Carolina's uh, Republican Party has a they did have a supermajority. It's just slightly less than that now. But they have a very firm control on the legislature, although they do have a Democratic governor. It's the legislature that got the state court involved and kind of kicked off this process. So that makes it a little bit of a, of a sticking point of technicality. But if everybody's doing what they said they should do, why are we in front of the Supreme Court and you calling this such a monumental case then, if it's so clear cut?
0: Because the crux of the petitioner's argument is going to be that the legislature cannot authorize the state courts to be involved at all. That the legislature cannot delegate any redistricting power to anyone. Only the legislature can draw a map.
1: How much of a legal problem is that? We've been talking about the political and the legislative side legally, because, again, now we're getting into, you know, who has power to do what here. We have a long history of the courts stepping in, and, and not that they're getting out the map and drawing the lines, but they're saying what they can and can't do, so by de facto they're drawing the lines. Again, this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's happened in a sequence. That's the sequence of events. The courts keep overriding the legislator. The legislator's have enough of it. That's you know, I know that's really simplified now, but that's basically where the legislator's are at on it. Mm-hmm. So what's the legality of that as far as the court's concerned now?
0: Well, the courts aren't involved if this theory prevails. The courts have no authority to review the map. The legislature will pass a map, and the first map that the legislature passes is the map that the state will use until they change the map again. And they can, if that is a prevailing theory, no one has the ability to challenge that map. So, so, we, so, so you know, I like we're, to we're,
1: chase we're, out, yeah, I like to chase out unintended consequences a little bit. I think this is a good spot to do it. You know, we have we have states that are just, you know, rock-solid red and rock-solid blue. Mm-hmm. You know, so theoretically, you get a California, you get an Alabama, just to take two extremes. They draw maps that are unchallengeable in court. They can do pretty much anything they want with these electoral maps. That includes all their legislative representation. That includes their congressional delegation, which is where the federal gets in because, of course, that's a federal office that seems to me like, and I understand the idea of the legislature doing it because it's their purview, but no ability to challenge it whatsoever seems like it's just sitting waiting for a rash of really bad abuses.
0: That's certainly the fear, Uh, one of the fears, and I think that is the principal fear to worry about. We already have a virtual crisis in this country about civic engagement. If you talk to the average person on the street in North Carolina, in Alabama, in California, here in Oregon, and ask them, how much difference does your vote make? How powerful are you as a voter? What's the answer you're going to get? If we have a system where Like our hypothetical state of Columbia, there has been complete capture of the legislature and disempowerment and dilution of the voters. You're going to have gold voters in Columbia saying, look, you know, we're we're 60 percent of the state and we can't get a single gold party policy passed at all. If you are a Republican in California, you will look at what is happening in Sacramento and say, there's no room for me there. Somebody who thinks like I do, someone who has ideas like mine, has no audience whatsoever. And no one's even going to bother listening to us because uh, the other party has created such a large majority for themselves. They don't need to listen to me. So I'm disempowered. I'm not even a citizen. You're still a citizen, but you're not going to really feel like one because your minority has already it's a minority, and then its votes get diluted even further, of course, you're going to feel disempowered. Of course, you're not going to care what happens in that state. And of course, you're going to get frustrated because nobody, excuse me, and of course, you're going to get frustrated because nobody is listening to you at all. Nobody's sitting down to even care what you have to say. Even if they're not going to do the thing you want, they're not going to even pretend to listen to you because they don't have to.
1: like Lago joining us to your point for all the talk we've had about elections lately and voter rights. And of course there was a lot of accommodations that had to be made for COVID era um, and all that. A lot of noise last few years, maybe because of it, voter turnout's been going up, like statistically going up. They think the voter turnout here will be higher than the last midterm elections. I agree with that. I think it will. I think it may be significantly up. We're on a trend where voter participation is going up. And that consciousness you're talking about is going up. You know, take your state, Oregon. You have a you have a governor's race, even though it's Oregon and Portland and everything else. You got a governor's race that's very very competitive. Um, things like yeah, that.
0: I have thoughts about this governor's race.
1: I, I'm sure you do, but just for the point, though, like people don't think of that being a competitive state, but it is this time for whatever reason. It happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. If if you don't have some if you don't have confidence, let me put it this way. If you don't have confidence in these maps, and I'm not talking about the parties suing each other constantly over them because most people don't pay attention to that. But if it's just, hey, whoever's empowered is going to draw these lines, no matter what, and there's no way to challenge it. My concern is that this upward trend is going to get blunted a little bit. And that's the kind of stuff that'll do it, is if people feel de facto disenfranchised like you're talking about, And I fear that if this goes through the way they're looking at it and the states have all the power to it without any, you know, not even federal oversight, just court oversight of like, hey, some judges got to make sure you're dotting the i's here. I think we could really blunt that momentum that we have going for the first time in a long time of voter turnout increasing.
0: Among other things, let me raise another. uh, It was just Halloween recently. Let me tell you another uh, possible scare story. Uh, There is another elections clause in the U.S. Constitution, not one that describes how congressional delegations are selected, but one that describes how slates of electors for president are chosen. And the wording is very, very similar to the congressional elections clause. There is at least one candidate for governor in these great United States who has already publicly advocated and At least in his primary made a uh, vow to seek enactment in state law that the legislature of his state be the one that selects the slate of electors and that an election that takes place for president in that state be advisory to the legislature.
1: Bert Lico joining us. That leads into a piece of this that doesn't get discussed enough, but we've been talking about it. You talk about it, our friend M. Carpenter. We talk about this every time we talk about the Supreme Court. If you had a theme for the Roberts Court, it would be the legislature needs to deal with this. There's a congressional piece to all this. A lot of this, you know, we're banging on the political parties and we're banging on the Supreme Court a lot here, but to be fair to both of all three of those parties for just a second, Congress could clean up a lot of this if they would take up their constitutional power and do some actual legislating in this realm instead of everything going to the Supreme Court. And then that's why the Roberts Court consistently writes (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, of course, they're like, hey, Congress should be dealing with this, not us. We've heard that over and over and over again the last few years. Sometimes they use it a little too broadly, but they got a point. Our three systems of government, like our states and the federal government, got to work together. Our three branches of government got to work together. Congress ain't carrying their weight on these issues, are they?
0: I agree with that as far as it goes. Um, yeah, the Congress has the power to do this, even under the theory that the petitioners in Moore versus Harper are advocating. Uh, there is direct authority in the text of the Constitution for Congress to do things like pass a new Voting Rights Act. But the fact of the matter is, the the Congress in the state that it's in, uh, and whether there's a partisan switch in Congress that happens as a result of today's elections or not, uh, there's functionally no chance that Congress is going to do this. There, there will not be a Voting Rights Act of 2022. There will not be a Voting Rights Act of 2023. We all know that the state of our politics are such that that simply isn't going to happen. So to say, to be for a court to say, Congress should be the one to step in and solve this problem, is to say this problem is going to remain unsolved for the foreseeable future.
1: Bert Lyko, joining us. We have to be grown folks about another piece of this, too, when we're talking about elections is the environment about elections is different now after the last few years. We just got to be honest about it. We have a swath of people who are not going to accept elections no matter what you do, no matter how Good the laws are, no matter how good it like is look, it's just enacted now. We've got a swath of people. I don't know what the percentage is. I don't think anybody will know. I'm afraid we might find out here come Tuesday. Hmm. 20, 25, 30 percent of people, every election is just invalid now. Hmm. That number may grow. That's part of it we have to discuss here too, because this isn't the same environment of a couple of years ago. If you put this With people that are election deniers, and I'm not talking about you know, of course, there's some you know things should be investigated, but just the wide swath conspiracy nonsense, wackadoo stuff because my guy lost, right? That stuff. If you if you get a partisan enough legislature paired with that and this, you know, we we scream about the foundations of democracy crumbling way way too much to the point that it's the boy that cries wolf. That's one of those things that can actually start to do it, though. Is that too much to say?
0: I have to hope and I do hope that those numbers that you're talking about of people who will simply reject an, an election out of hand and buy into uh, bizarre baseless theories about why the election was tainted when it wasn't simply because their preferred candidate lost. I have to believe that that percentage is smaller than 20 to 25 percent, because if it's 20 to 25 percent, if if it's more than that. Um, we're already lost. It's gone. Uh, If you can't accept that sometimes you're not going to win an election and you can't live with the other party having power for a time and you having to rally and come back and win in a future election, if you can't accept that, then you have now rejected democracy. That is democracy that you will submit to the will of the majority. You mentioned Oregon. Um, I am a Democrat. I am uh, a a fairly uh, down-the-middle mainstream Democrat, and I am used to Democrats winning elections in Oregon and having their way in Salem. Um, I am used to a state government that, has some systems built into it that requires the Democratic majority to sit down and listen to what Republicans have to say and Republicans having enough power that they do get listened to. And I think that's right because the Republicans I share my state with are as much Oregonians as me and they have as much right as me to have their points of view aired and discussed and thrown into the mix as we come up with policies to solve our problems. Uh some of what is powering the Republican surge and why uh, the Republican today has a reasonable chance at getting elected in what is overwhelmingly a Democratic state is that Republicans feel like they have not been listened to. They feel like they have not been given a place at the table. And they are right to be upset about that if it is true. I don't think it is, but I could be wrong. Certainly they think I am. If you don't have that process where everybody says, "Okay, um, I'm a Republican and I don't like the Democrat who got elected governor, but she got elected governor. So she's the governor. Now I want to sit down and bargain with her and speak with her and have her listen to my concerns and take me seriously. If you aren't doing that, if you aren't emotionally willing to do that, then you have now said, I fundamentally don't accept that I'm part of a democracy. The same thing is true for the governor. If the governor says, I don't have to listen to you, Republican, because I have a a two vote majority in the state house and and I'm gonna get reelected because that's just how the partisan politics break down, then that person has also stepped away from democracy. If we're gonna live together and have different points of view, we have to talk to each other and listen to one another. And we have to agree that there is a nonviolent way to work out and resolve our differences.
1: Folks, if you've listened to the Heard Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast district of conservation it's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from dc and beyond from topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices listen to district of conservation on apple podcast or wherever podcasts are played This is going to the Supreme Court. It's going to be heard on December the 7th. There's your fun date for something important, right? December 7th, this is going to be heard. And a signal, would,
0: yeah. a signal to you of what's going on is this is the only case on the Supreme Court's calendar that day. And they've allocated three hours of argument.
1: Which that's is a lot. lot. Which is a lot. Um, usually get 20 minutes aside. That's it. And they move along he leave reading at the supreme court's a waste of time uh it's a big business everybody has fun with it it's a waste of time let's stick to the to the to the things here though practically normally going to the supreme court and going you have no power here sir madam uh that usually doesn't go real well for you when you stand before the nine however that's kind of the argument here Mm -hmm. Uh, but where do you feel this is there has been some briefs and dissents in previous cases you talk about, as you look at the court, there's probably about three to four votes that may go that way for this uh, theory if it comes to it. I don't want to tea lead, just lay the land force. What is it going to look like when they argue this case, do you think? Because now we can listen to it, which I'm not convinced is a great thing, but the world we live in. When we're listening to this case, if we're listening into it, what are we listening to? Who are we listening to specifically?
0: Um again with the caveat that uh, reading the tea leaves is just that we really should not try and invest a lot of weight in in what what we predict Uh, but what you should listen for is uh, the theme that you mentioned before if there is a theme to the roberts court it is the legislature needs to take care of this Uh, this isn't our job Uh, listen for that I think you are going to hear again and again and again the argument, but Congress could step in, couldn't it? I expect to hear that from the bench during those arguments multiple times. Congress could step in, couldn't it? And expect to hear the petitioners really underlining and highlighting that part of their theory.
1: Uh, Just to put this, because this has been a heavy topic, just for a fun topic, over under Two Clarence Thomas questions during the three hours of discussion.
0: Uh, my money is going to be on zero. You think he'll go zero? Really? I think I think he'll go zero. So I will take the under on uh, on any bet.
1: To be fair, that would be consistent to his care. He very rarely asks questions, just well known to be so. But
0: yeah, in in recent years, he has been asking more questions. Uh, in, um, you know, last term, his output of questions during oral argument tripled. Yeah. And he asked three.
1: Three. <laughs> and we have to take out right after Scalia died because he talked the first bench after Scalia on purpose. That was somewhat of a tribute to his friend. So you got to take that one out, too. But a little uh, bit. But of I'll fun. tell you
0: the real reason why. And, and this may get a little bit heavy again because it goes back to tea leaf reading. Uh, but I would fully expect that if there is going to be questioning that is attempting to persuade uh, undecided members of the nine to vote with the petitioners, uh, that questioning is most likely to come from Sam Alito. Yeah. And if there's going to be questioning that is most likely to try and draw undecided members of the nine to vote with the respondents and say that the independent state legislature doctrine does not provide exclusive, non-delegable, plenary power to a legislature, uh, that that is likely to come from Elena Kagan.
1: Yeah. It'll also be interesting to see, uh, of course, we have you know new justices. Uh, and then, of course, nobody ever knows what John Roberts is going to do especially in big time cases like this, it's always hard because he's so hyper aware of things. It's going to be an interesting case. We, you need to read this whole piece in ordinary times, uh, ordinary-times.com. He's the editor in chief emeritus for a reason, because he can bang these things out before I even get done asking him to do it. Cause he's just that good. Um, one last thing I just, I have to ask because it's the topic at hand. We've seen really big time, uh, court stuff. Of course, Dobbs' decision was you know, seismic. I think that's a fair way to put that one. You said this is the most consequential case since Shelby. Even if this goes in the way that you think it's not good for the country, we're not going to see a, a blowback like Dobbs with this just because the awareness isn't there. Would it be two years at the next election? Yeah. Would this be, you know, 2024, the next election, people might notice a change. If this goes into effect, how long before people would actually notice it in their maps, in their polling places? Because I got a feeling this is one of those things where it'll go through the court and then the after effects take a while to get into the social conscious. Is that an accurate way to put it, probably?
0: It's I, I, I hate to sound condescending to the average voter Uh, because I think the average voter is smarter than the popular wisdom likes to make fun of them for being. Uh, I do think the average voter is aware that they are members of a geographic district and that the boundaries of that district have been created for political advantage to somebody. Uh, So I can throw out scare numbers for low levels of civic engagement, Uh, we've all heard them, Uh, but I do think the average voter is aware that their vote is being directed in a way that is to a, somebody's political advantage. Now, when will they start feeling the effects of this doctrine if the Supreme Court adopts it? In theory, they could right away. We know from another case out of uh, Texas in the early 2010s that although a legislature traditionally only redistricts once every 10 years, there's no rule. They can redistrict every election if they want. And wouldn't that be fun for you all there in North Carolina? Yeah,
1: I. it is never fun. Um, it's never fun when you got to redraw life, It's never fun when you got to redo an election three times over a map, which we did a couple of years ago. No, it's not fun at all. Bird Lyco, you're outstanding, sir. I love having you on. We're going to keep having you on because we actually been talking about we want to do some constitutional stuff because you explain it so well. Even I can understand it. We'll talk again in December after oral arguments on this one. Touch in on it. Let folks know where they can follow you. What you got going on, my friend.
0: Every once in a while, I will still write some essays. Uh, typically, when when you ask me to, Andrew, at uh, ordinary-times.com. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Please uh, do not stop asking for those essays. And uh, at least for the time being, I can be found at Bert Lyko on uh, twitter.com.
1: Yep. I'm also on the Twitter until the Saudis and the Chinese make the dissidents like me get kicked off because I'm not going to quit talking about them and they own that company now. But that's another topic for another day, my friend. Enjoy that wonderful fall Oregonian weather, my friend. Keep your head down on Tuesday and we will regroup and talk some more very soon, my friend.
0: I look forward to it, Andrew. Thank you, sir. All
1: the music on HerTel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies.